This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. David Wiss, who became a registered dietitian nutritionist in 2013 and founded Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice of nutritionists specializing in the treatment of eating and substance use disorders. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA by investigating links between adverse childhood experiences and mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Dr. Wiss is a nutritionist, health consultant, functional medicine practitioner, recovery coach, and offers psychoeducation related to his areas of expertise. Today, we talk about what trauma-informed interventions mean. Dr. Wiss explains how to balance choosing healthy nutrition options with avoiding disordered eating. Dr. Wiss talks about not only mental health around eating, but how nutrition can also impact mental health. He describes what neuroinflammation is and what foods and behaviors can trigger this and what we can do to prevent it. And before we begin, I just want to give you a quick heads up. In this podcast episode, we'll be discussing eating disorders. We understand that this topic can be sensitive and may potentially trigger some individuals. So if you feel uncomfortable or need to step away, please take care of yourself and prioritize your well-being. We want everyone to feel safe and supported. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Wiss. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today, um, and I'm glad that you were able to uh, join me this morning. You have very interesting background and have done a lot of great research, so I'm really excited to start chatting with you today. This is very exciting for me as well, and I love the name, the Nuance Podcast. Hopefully, we can play with that word a little bit. So I would love to just jump right into it. Um, what is nutrition and recovery and what inspired you to found the program? Yeah, that's the name of my group practice, uh, which really was a passion project that stemmed from some of my own experience. Uh, my training as a registered dietitian helped prepare me to share a nutrition message with the world. And I saw there was a major gap in mental health. And, you know, in Los Angeles, there's a lot of substance use disorder treatment. And I was able to see as a dietetic intern that none of these facilities um, had a point of view about nutrition or at least uh, uh, didn't house nutrition services. So I had a strong sense that if we can bring nutrition into mental health settings, we can improve recovery outcomes. So the the term nutrition and recovery really brings you know, the biomedical world of nutrition with the spiritual world of recovery. That's so fascinating. How did you become interested in nutrition yourself? Yeah, thank you. I get asked that a lot. I did have one of these second career aha moments when I had my own health challenges. I think a lot of people find nutrition based on personal experience. I always want to be careful about my own personal experience because I know personal experience is biases science, 
but I had a revolutionary change in my health um, after having a lot of challenges, mostly mental health challenges. And I use nutrition, exercise, sunlight, sleep, supplements, and it created a revolution in my internal world that everyone around me noticed. And they said, I don't know what you're doing, but you better run with it. And so it was like the the nutrition field chose me, per se. <laughs> I love that. Um, and something that has been thrown around, this terminology that has been thrown around a lot, trauma-informed interventions. Mm. Um, and I feel like people use that terminology, but uh, nobody's ever really explained it. So what does it mean to have trauma-informed interventions and how does your program uh, fit into that mold? Yeah, thank you. I think trauma-informed uh, relies on a different set of assumptions. I think uh, oftentimes people assume that you know, health behavior change is just about information. And then if you give people the right handout or or teach them, you know, the right way of eating, then they should be able to put it into application. Trauma-informed starts to assume that there might be hidden barriers or emotional reasons why things could be difficult. And it's very clear that nutrition interventions can be very triggering for people, especially if they have early life adversity or adverse food-related experience or a lot of noise around body image. So the goal of trauma-informed nutrition is to not re-traumatize people with interventions that could not land well on them for a wide range of reasons. So that's the broadest definition. I also like to think about trauma-informed work as acknowledging the biological role of trauma in the body, right? So if someone has experienced a lot of stress and adversity, it does change physiology, right? Uh, the immune system, the HPA access, changes in the brain, changes in reward. It sets people up for more addiction-like behavior. So trauma-informed is gentle, but it also takes into account some of the biological uh, impacts of trauma that could be ameliorated through nutrition interventions. I, I really love that because it's something that I've kind of grappled with um, in both my professional career and then also my own like personal life is how do you have the best nutrition without going into a, like a disordered eating pattern? Because it's really hard to make really good decisions um, without thinking about food all the time. Um, so how do you balance that fine line of recommending like a healthier diet without going into the disordered eating realm? That's the million dollar question that we're all trying to figure out. It's very obvious that Diet culture energy really picked up steam in the 80s and the 90s. And there was, you know, extreme stuff people were doing. I mean, less than a thousand calories and shakes and people were really doing extreme things to lose weight and to change health. And then there was the non-diet revolution that really came in, you know, the late 90s and 2000s. It's really picked up steam in the last few years. And uh, some of that messaging has gone to extremes as well, right? So there's a need for more nuance in the nutrition space, right? How do we teach people how to be deliberate and intentional eaters without causing new mental health problems, right? And so there isn't a broad answer for that. It needs to be assessed on an individual basis. Everyone has their own, you know, profile and old ideas around food and body, 
You know, it's an assignment that I often give people to take a look at what might be some of these ideas that are governing your thought processes around health. I also like to ask people what percentage of the day they spend thinking about food, what percentage of the day they spend thinking about body. And then there's a way to uh, message using language that will land on someone as safe and uh, not really push people into any new extremes. Right. So that is truly my effort nowadays is to think about health promotion without conferring risk for disordered eating. Yeah, that's so important. And I think it's a lot of like structural things as well. I grew up in other countries um, for some of my life and the accessibility and availability of healthier foods makes it so that you don't have to constantly think is what I'm eating healthy. So there has to be public health changes because putting it on the individual is just mentally taxing. That's right. And I have a public health background as well. And I've really thought about the um, debates around ultra processed foods from a public health perspective. You know, it's very obvious that dieting, diet culture can be harmful. It can promote weight stigma. But the question is, is it possible that the uh, ubiquitous presence of ultra processed foods in the food environment are actually driving diet culture, right? And if we were to think upstream and to make some policy changes, would people be less obsessed with food and less obsessed with their body if we could address it from a a, a more population level perspective? So I'm right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would love to talk about how nutrition plays a role in mental health and how you've adapted that in um, the program that you've created. So why is it important to have nutrition in the mental health recovery space? Yeah, to follow up on our previous points, um, when you think about the weight of the evidence for nutrition and mental health, there is some suggestion that ultra-processed food consumption can be a driver of poor mental health, right? So from a public health perspective, one might think, we should recommend less ultra processed foods, but there are certain mental health conditions like restrictive eating disorders, perhaps some forms of OCD that uh, interact with orthorexia nervosa, where that recommendation could be harmful, right? So how do we find the middle ground? When I think about nutrition for mental health, I generally cover three areas. The first is nutrients for the brain. So, you know, macronutrients, micronutrients, right? Vitamins, minerals, that are utilized by the brain, B vitamins, for example. And then of course, gut health, right? We live in the era of the gut brain access. We know that, you know, once food hits our mouth and enters our system, there's a lot going on in the GI tract that informs uh, mental health and it's bi-directional with the brain. And then lastly, the third area is what we call nutritional psychology, how we think about food, the meaning that we ascribe to food and the eating experience, the social connection. And so when you bring it all together, you're merging neuroscience, gastroenterology, microbiology, sociology, right? Social context. And it really comes together as a, as a gentle yet um, powerful message to shift the narrative away from just focusing on fat and muscles and really starting to think about how nutrition affects the gut and the brain, how it affects our mood, how it impacts relational health, and the overall energy that we carry with us throughout the day. 
I love that. And that fits perfectly. Um, you're a perfect guest for the nuance podcast. Cause I think a lot of times when we talk about nutrition, cause there's a big push too to talk about nutrition and mental health and, um, nutritional psychiatry, but a lot of times the recommendations that we make to patients, um, depends also on their cultural background. Yeah. I try to teach people, you know, about concepts and introduce guiding principles and let them ultimately decide what direction they want to go, right? It seems to be the way forward for um, nutrition, at least, to to empower people rather than be the expert. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned um, a couple of things in your in your last answer that I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper into. So what are some of the um, important nutrients for the brain and why does the brain need them to function? Yeah, there are um, a wide range of nutrients utilized by the brain. I think it's safe to say that the ones that get the most attention are B vitamins. Um, But of course, there's a lot of other minerals, magnesium, choline, omega-3 fatty acids are super important for brain health, uh, promote uh, neurotransmission, optimal communication from different parts of the brain. And... um, you know, there's people that are way smarter than me that could break down all the precise mechanisms of where these nutrients are utilized. And I think there's still a lot of work that we know. I think the science sort of suggests that when people have deficiencies, it's associated with adverse mental health outcomes, but we still have a long way to go before we can actually uncover all of the mechanistic pathways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then also you mentioned the gut-brain connection. What is that? Why does it matter? Um, We are in the age of the gut-brain connection and the microbiome, um, but I think the general population still doesn't necessarily know exactly why it's so important. So just if we could dig into that, that'd be great. Yeah. I I think when, when it started to become newsworthy, people really picked up on the idea that neurotransmitters are uh, many of them are produced in the gut, right? And then it became clear, well, if they're in the gut, does it mean that they cross the blood-brain barrier? And I think a lot of people got excited about the neurotransmitter uh, relationship between the gut and the brain. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other pathways. We have the term, you know, probiotics to describe the bacteria. We have the prebiotics to describe the fibers that the bacteria eat. And then we have this new term, postbiotics, describing, you know, the output from the bacterial degradation. Um, My interest has really been in the immune system and inflammation. We know that, you know, intestinal permeability, um, uh, dysbiotic microbiome can lead to low-grade inflammation that can travel throughout the body. So, you know, we have anti-inflammatory ways of eating, uh, you know, high fiber diets to promote gut health. But in terms of inflammation, I've been very interested in the concept of neuroinflammation, how uh, inflammatory processes and inflammatory signaling molecules can cross the blood-brain barrier and lead to uh, inflammation in the brain. So from my standpoint, anti-inflammatory eating, gut-based eating one of the main goals is to reduce inflammation in the body, thereby improving mental health symptoms. Mm, That's a great answer. Thank you. And what, what kind of foods or behaviors cause this neuroinflammation? 
it's vast. I mean, we're talking about now alcohol, medications, stress. There's so many things that can um, disrupt gut health. And, you know, there's things that can be helpful. The question is, are the things that can be helpful, helpful enough, right? So when I recommend a probiotic, high fiber, beans, whole grains, fermented foods, yogurt, um, colorful fruits and vegetables with polyphenols, and we do stool testing, right? We're seeing small improvements. So I always tell people that, you know, if you do one of these things, you know, you can make a little impact. But if you do all of these things collectively for months and years, you can actually make a significant change. And it's easy to tell if someone like broke their arm or has a rash. Um, How can you tell if your gut is healthy or not? Yeah. One of the most important markers for health that I use in my clinical practice is bowel movements, right? I know that if someone has a well-formed bowel movement at roughly the same time every day, that's a marker for health, right? So that's a big part of my intake process is learning about how frequently people go uh, to the bathroom. And um, sometimes people chuckle when I ask for the details, but that does seem to be uh, important for the work that I do. Oftentimes improving gut health and getting people to be more regular is like at the top of the list, right? Um, Of course, we have bloating and gas and abdominal pain that some people report. And the best way is to do a stool analysis, right? To actually do a stool test. Um, Stool tests give us good information about what's going on, but not always a complete picture. So I often warn people, if we're going to do a stool test and make some changes, it's wise to do another test six or nine months out to see how some of the changes we made impacted the presence of... uh, microbial species. And I have a a few patients that come to me and say, and I ask them, are you having regular bowel movements? And they say, yes, every four days, every three days. And that's normal for me. So what is a normal bowel movement so that people can kind of gauge if they are having those healthy bowel movements? Yeah. I try to be careful with the term normal because there's a, just a wide variation of possibilities in the world. I would say that going three or four days is uh, moving toward constipation. Yeah, I I would say that that's not normal. If if someone skips a day or misses a day, that's not a big deal. There's other people that go two or three times a day. Um, So yeah, there's a a range of possibilities, but if, if there's consistency, that's a good marker. Gotcha, thank you. And you also mentioned fiber and the importance of fiber. Um, why does our gut microbiome like fiber so much? Fiber is the fuel for the bacteria. Uh, it's been shown that if you take probiotics or eat foods that are rich in probiotics, but you don't actually have enough fiber, they're unlikely to proliferate. So some of the data recently shows that uh, the fiber itself or the uh, prebiotics are probably even more beneficial than taking the probiotics uh, themselves. So for example, um, soluble fiber gets broken down and converted into short chain fatty acids, which are then sent back through the body. Butyrate's the most kind of famous one for its anti-inflammatory properties. And there's been efforts to take butyrate as a supplement and a lot of it's still super unclear, but I'm not into math centric nutrition recommendations, but if there was one that I had to make, I would say, let's all try to get 30 grams of fiber 
per day from food rather than supplements. Mm. And a lot of people eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and think they're getting a lot of fiber. They're like, I eat vegetables at every meal. And the truth is it's really hard to, to hit that marker with fruits and vegetables alone. That's when the beans and the whole grains and the seeds and nuts and whatnot come into play. Oh, okay. Interesting. And what's the difference between um, insoluble versus soluble fiber? And uh, where what foods can we get those from? Yeah. Uh, fibers generally exist in a matrix. So there'll be a combination of both soluble and insoluble fibers. Um, soluble means that it dissolves in water, right? Um, as pointed from the word itself. And I think that um, foods that are like, uh, I think of chia seeds, right? When you soak chia seeds, they form this gel. Uh, I think about oatmeal and beans. And again, these aren't foods that are solely soluble fiber. They generally have soluble and insoluble, but um, yeah, insoluble is more likely to pass through, whereas the soluble is more likely to be broken down. And so it's pretty clear that the bacterial species that we want to proliferate tend to prefer the soluble fiber. Chia seeds are my favorite. I do recommend drinking chia seeds in water. When you soak them, they expand. And more recently, we've been using basil seeds. They actually expand as well, have a little bit of a basil flavor, and some people love it, some people don't. But it's a great way to improve gut health by increasing soluble fiber. Wow, interesting. And I feel like chia seeds kind of taste like boba, and boba is a big craze here. So um, I, I love the chia seeds too. So everything that you've said is super important. I love that. And we've talked a lot about mental health as well. Um, but can we use these interventions for people who don't necessarily have a mental health diagnosis? Um, and how can that benefit just like all of this information benefit anyone, even if they don't feel like um, they have that diagnosis? Well, gut health is definitely for everyone. Um, I do think that in the you know, diet for mental health space, there's been some attention toward, you know, extreme diets for uh, rare mental health conditions. And I think in the world of medicine and nutrition, we want to know like, what's the intervention for this diagnosis, right? And, and so that's when, you know, people use the term diet for mental health. Um, when I use the term nutrition for mental health, it's a little bit more broad, right? As opposed to a specific diet, it's more like eating food for mood and brain health, and really just shifting the goals, shifting the outcome measures from cardiometabolic risk factors to uh, depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms. Uh, one could argue that we all have mild mental health stuff going on, right? So I, I do think that uh, nutrition can be reframed as something that's not only relevant for people that have fitness goals or other medical related goals, but can be utilized by people that are looking to optimize their cognitive processes and have more clear thoughts and just generally feel more peace. Yeah, I love that. Um, and you, you had some general recommendations already. Like you said that you don't really like the metric based stuff, but at least 30 grams of fiber a day. And I know everyone has an individualized approach, but in general, what are some broad stroke, <laughs> um, diet or nutrition interventions or recommendations that you would have for our listeners? Yeah, I'm a big fan of variety. 
And I think a lot of people find the foods they like and tend to sort of repeat. I think our ancestors probably uh, had mono diets at, at, at parts of history. Uh, but we live in an era where there's accessibility of lots of different things. And I try to get people to eat uh, as wide a range of foods and colors as possible. There was some research that indicated that people who ate like rotated through 30 different foods had had better sort of gut environments. Um, so for example, to try to get 30 different foods in the course of a week would be like, you know, rotating through eight or nine different fruits, seven or eight different vegetables, maybe getting five whole grains, bringing in the barley and the quinoa and the farro, bringing in a wide range of nuts and seeds, maybe four or five different nuts, four or five different seeds. It's a difficult goal to reach, to try to get 30 different plant foods in the course of a week or in the course of a month. Maybe that's a little bit more practical, but yeah, rotating through. So you get a wide range of different fibers and a wide range of different polyphenolic compounds. And the easiest way to track, you know, antioxidant polyphenol intake is through colors. When I was a kid, they told us to eat the rainbow. And then that got uh, used by, um, I think it was Skittles that took that uh, slogan. But there's actually a lot of really good scientific support to get the entire spectrum of hues in colors uh, if possible. So the four categories that I use are yellow, orange, blue, purple, um, green, especially the dark greens, and then the reds. If someone could get all four of those categories every day and try to get maybe 30 is too much, maybe try to get 20 foods in the course of a week, 20 plant foods, that's a really good start. Yeah. And sometimes we forget that plant foods, um, I don't know, do you count spices as plant foods? Sure. Yeah. So like yeah. if you add extra spices, sometimes that can that can bump up your number without even feeling like it's too much. <laughs> yeah. I think fresh herbs are some of the most potent anti-inflammatory compounds that exist. They add so much flavor. And um, uh, I've bundled a lot of my recipes by herb so that if someone buys uh, 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 cilantro or parsley, it's usually too much for one dish, right? And it ends up going bad in the fridge. So I've always recommended like spend a week with the parsley, spend a week with the cilantro, make multiple dishes and huge fan of herbs and spices as well. And home cooking. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. That's something that I feel like we very much lost <laughs> recently. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any tips for people who haven't really cooked their own food? Um, where do people get started? Do you have resources? Um, it can be kind of daunting if you never learned how to chop up a vegetable or use a frying pan or anything like that. Yeah, I work with people a lot on their barriers to cooking. There's a lot of reasons, you know, people don't feel comfortable in the kitchen. Then maybe there's not a lot of space. Maybe they're sharing space with someone. Maybe no one ever taught them. Maybe they've made some mistakes in the kitchen. Um, and people have anxiety you know, and it's so much easier to get um, reliable food from someone else than take the risk of making mistakes. Uh, I think a lot of people have real micro trauma from the kitchen, making meals that didn't come out well or buying food that spoiled in the fridge and wishing that they would have ate it before it went bad and then throwing it away and thinking, well, I'll never do that again. 
a lot of people also have barriers around the cooking and the cleaning and they don't realize it. They're just, they never got um, handy with, with doing pots and pans. And so it just feels like too much work. So yeah, I work with people to break through their barriers and to be willing to lean into the discomfort a little bit, um, make some mistakes. It's all part of the learning process. I tell people sometimes it's better to um, have some experimentation in the kitchen, keep it light, bring joy and celebration and think about it as an ongoing effort toward the next one. Because I tell people you're going to be an eater for the rest of your life, right? We might as well get empowered now. And the tip that I often give is like, let's keep it simple. Maybe you can buy some pre-made things and just make one side, right? Or make a main thing and buy the side so it doesn't feel overwhelming. And then once people build a little bit of momentum, um, you start to freestyle in the kitchen, right? It's like recipes in the beginning. And then over time, you don't need them anymore. And you just start to operate intuitively. Thank you. And uh, you've done so much research. I was looking through all of your publications and it's it's a wide variety of things. So what is your interest right now? What do you think that the field is missing in research and what projects are you working on? Yeah, I've done a lot of work on food addiction and ultra processed food addiction. It's a very controversial topic. As I mentioned earlier, there are people that don't like the idea of it because for some people it feels like like it perpetuates diet culture energy, but I've put a lot of effort into understanding food addiction as something that actually decreases stigma. It's a way of understanding the neurobiology of eating. And there's a, a, a major gap between food addiction practitioners and researchers and people in the more classic eating disorder space. And they seem to be at war with each other about these divergent food philosophies. So a lot of my work has been on bridging the gap and making peace between these two fields, getting the food addiction community to recognize that some of their messaging can be triggering and confer risk for disordered eating, and then getting the eating disorder field to recognize that some of the patients that come into treatment actually might have addiction-like neurobiology that makes them unique in their eating patterns and their relationship with food. And can you quickly describe what is um, ultra-processed food? Yeah, so we use the NOVA classification system that has four categories. There's like, you know, the sort of unprocessed food, minimally processed food, processed food, and ultra-processed food. And I think that ultra-processed food is characterized by using mostly, you know, culinary ingredients and, and they're manufactured through industrial practices. So if you think about cookies, sodas, cakes, um, it, it, it's, it's more resembling constituents of food rather than food itself. And it's generally associated with large scale industrial practices that involve packaging, which can also have some negative implications for planetary health. And it is generally, um, designed with the goal of maximizing profit rather than promoting health, which is, you know, kind of the way of uh, the world, or at least in our country. So it's difficult to push back on matters of capitalism and Wall Street, but that's definitely a part of that conversation. Yeah. And um, do you mind describing the app that you're working on too? 
Yeah, thank you. Why is my nutrition is a transformative educational journey that is designed to shift the paradigm from fitness to mental well-being. So a lot of the apps out there are focused on calories and macronutrients and fitness goals. So we use other goals. We're using nutrition to improve depressive symptoms, to improve sleep quality, uh, relational health, to help people with addictions, disordered eating, etc. So it's non-math centric which means that instead of focusing on all the quantitative components of nutrition, we're focusing more on the qualitative components. For example, what food groups were present, what colors were present, how hungry before the meal, how full after. And it's a place for people to set some intentions and review their progress and essentially embark on a healing journey. So there's a food log in there with photos and opportunities for people to move in a new direction without being triggered, without feeling like they failed, and without getting constant metrics that lead to obsessive thinking. And there's a video-based program that teaches people the tenets of eating food for mood and brain health and you know offers assignments and uh, gives people a chance to uh, essentially become their own expert on themselves. And of course, it involves lifestyle medicine approaches like, you know, movement and sleep and is really designed to help people who are on a healing journey, who are looking for something new with nutrition. And um, it's super exciting. Uh, this conversation has a lot of traction in Australia and the UK and Canada and parts of South America. But this connection between nutrition and mental health isn't as popular in the US and it does make some sense, but I think there's a lot of us who are saying, no, we need to start this conversation here and we need to help people who are, um, you know, diet culture dropouts who don't want to diet, don't want to just focus on their body, but also want to be deliberate and intentional about food and move towards anti-inflammatory eating for gut health and ways to support food positive, body positive ways of being. That's amazing. Thank you so much for working on that. That's That sounds like an amazing program, an amazing app. Lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. The first thing that comes is the future is now. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> and I'm sure someone has said that before, but I, I feel um, uh, like it's only fair to say the first thing that came to mind. I, I've spent a lot of my life thinking about the future and fantasizing about how things, you know, will unfold and sometimes miss the present moment. You know, for those of us that are very goal-directed and future-oriented, we can miss uh, the the preciousness of the moment that already is. And I'm guilty of that. So um, mm-hmm. I'm working on being more in the here and now because uh, that's super important to me. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Wiss, so much for joining us this morning um, in conversation. Your work is incredibly important. So thank you for everything that you do. And I look forward to everyone hearing this conversation. I appreciate chatting with you so much.
The opinions expressed on this show are those of the nuance in medicine explained and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board-certified practicing clinician.